This is for the men who never settle. The ones who believe only quitters and a game and a tie. The type of guys who choose the bar with the biggest TVs to overcompensate for theirs at home. This is the Lodge mentality. This is Twin Peaks. Garretson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City. 1510 AM at 94.5 FM. It is Friday and it's another edition of The Shift on ESPN Kansas City, 94.5 FM and 1510 AM. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Garrettson and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and northeast Kansas for years. Also be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at 105th and Metcalf in Overland Park, or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. And if you call that number and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift, Kim and her team at American Family Insurance will give you a $10 gift card to Starbucks to use on whatever you would like, coffee, tea, breakfast items. It's your $10. All you got to do is mention you heard their ad on the shift and call that number at 913-649-2002 today. Well, since it is the opener for the Cactus League for the Kansas City Royals later on this afternoon at 2 o'clock, I felt it was very fitting to play an interview that we had earlier this week over on Sports Radio 810 WHB on my night show, The Night Shift, fittingly, that happens over at Hollywood Casino every Wednesday from 7 to 10. But I had the chance to sit down with Max Reaper of Royals Review, talking some Royals baseball, some offseason moves, what this new coaching staff can bring with their new philosophies, and of course, a look ahead into some position battles that may occur throughout spring training. So here was my interview with Max Reaper from Wednesday. Time to talk some Royals baseball and go to the phone lines and chat with Max Reaper of Royals Review. Max, thanks for taking some time out of your night schedule and joining the show to talk some Royals baseball. Absolutely, Jack. Thanks for having me on, man. Now, I think the biggest news of this week has been the injury news to Drew Waters being sidelined for the next six weeks with an oblique injury. Now, I know that probably means that Kyle Isbell will be the opening day center fielder for the Kansas City Royals, but do you think there's any other maybe outside chance for somebody like a Samad Taylor? you think the Royals would be considering Edward Olivares as an everyday center fielder despite some of his defensive metrics, or is it pretty much Kyle Isbell's spot to lose at this point? Yeah, well, first of all, you, you have to really feel for Drew Waters. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, really struggled in the Braves organization for a long time and gets a fresh start with the Royals and, and kind of simplifies things under Alex Zumwalt, has a, a really good stretch there for 30 games, Seems like he's got things figured out. Can't went to this year as, as, as a, I think, a, had a leg up on getting at least a starting job or at least a, you know, a role where he's going to get a lot of playing time. And then to come out of the gate, like first day of full workouts, and you or injure your oblique and he's out for six weeks, which, you know, early in the year like this, he can still come back and play most of the season. So, uh, you know, hopefully he'll still get some significant playing time this year. But certainly you don't want to get what, you know, is a pretty critical year for him off to a, this kind of start. So I do feel for him. But, yeah, I think Kyle Isbell, you know, this, this you know, you don't like to see injuries, but this, this does present opportunities, right, for other players, especially young players that are trying to earn uh, playing time. And 
Kyle Isbell, I think, had the leg up on the center field job anyway, uh, with I think Waters maybe competing more for a right field job. So I think this kind of secures Isbell's place in the opening a roster for center field. Um, I think he'll get a, a pretty long look there. But I think it does uh, create some, some, you know, there's a domino effect. There's, there's going to be some, some playing time open somewhere. Um, Edward Olivares, I, I, you know, I think he's a corner outfielder. I don't think you'll see him much in center. Uh, but I think this does give him a little more playing time in right, whereas, you know, before, if Waters was in right field, maybe Olivares DHs more. So maybe this gives them a chance to evaluate to see if he's going to be a guy that can swing it defensively. And I know that they've kind of worked with, uh, worked with him to improve some of his, his, his you know, mechanics and fundamentals out there. Uh, so, you know, maybe with an extended look out there, he can improve. And, and with his bat, you know, if his bat has been as good as it's been in, in short stints with the Royals, and, you know, he could actually uh, – we could have a nice a corner outfielder there. Uh, so that, that would give you some options. And they may also create, you know, that, again, the domino effect. If he's playing right field instead of DH, maybe that opens up a roster spot for a guy like Fran Mel Reyes, who they signed uh, last week on a minor league deal, a guy that has two thirty home run seasons under his belt, but, you know, obviously had a terrible – season last year with Cleveland and the Cubs, uh, but is looking for another opportunity. And, you know, if he gets a, a shot here to start the year and gets off to a hot start, maybe he, he stays in the lineup and, and suddenly the Royals either have a piece, you know, for the future or, uh, you know, potentially flippable trade asset this summer. So it's nice to have these kind of options. I think that's, that's why they want to build up this kind of depth so that when a guy goes down, they're not in the lurch. You know, they've got other guys that could turn to. And, and we'll see. Maybe some of these guys will pan out, but at least – this will create some opportunities to get um, extended looks at some of these other players. It's perfect you brought up Fran Mill Reyes because that was going to be my next question to you. Of if you could give me a percentage, what are the chances you think Fran Mill Reyes makes the opening day roster for the Kansas City Royals? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I, I, I think they signed him for a reason. I think they wanted to get a right-handed bat this offseason. They looked at the options out there. Either they, you know, weren't able to come to terms with some guys, or um, you know, you know, there wasn't a good fit out there. But but Reyes is out there, and I think you know. Uh, it, it, in some ways, you know, it, you don't want to like, uh, you know, with, with, with Vinny Pasquantino at first base and Nick Prada behind him, you don't want to really clog DH too much. And I think, look, Reyes is a DH at this point. I don't, I know he can play some right field, and you may see him out there once in a while, but he's probably more suited at DH at this point. Um, and I, so I know you don't want to like clog that position too much with, you know, if Nick Prada's ready. And of course, Salvi's got to play over there, uh, you know, on, on you know, at least a quarter of the time. So uh, I don't know if we'll see Reyes as a long-term piece, but uh, certainly you know he's a guy that has some potential. Like I said, two thirty home run seasons, and if he can protect a guy like Vinny Pasquantino a little bit, make pitchers think a little, you know, twice before they uh, you know pitch around him, then uh, I think that's going to help these young hitters a little bit. So it's nice to have if if he can kind of recapture that magic that he had a couple years ago, which is when I'm you know 2021, he was a pretty good hitter. Uh, then I think the Royals have a, a nice piece there that they can, you know, put around some of the young hitters so they're not completely relying on a bunch of first and second year players. Now, Fangraphs just put out their top 100 prospects of 2023, and the Royals didn't have any uh, in those top 100. Now they are a very young team, graduating a lot of guys from last year. But what should the concern level be amongst Royals fans, knowing that going into this year per fan, fan graphs, which you ever, if you are somebody that's into analytics, you like those metrics, they are rating a lot of those players and basing, basing them on how good they will be or project to be through analytics. And if the Royals have nobody in the top 100, what should the concern level be maybe on a scale of 1 to 10? <laughs> well, yeah, it's less than panic mode, but, but, but certainly a level of concern, like a 7. Uh, and, and, look, I think Gavin Cross 
should be on that list. They're the first round pick from last year. And in the chat, Eric Long and Hanging a Fangraphs kind of explained that, you know, they, they have, I think it sounds like they have a little bit of a bias against corner outfielders, which is what they see cross as uh, until they kind of are close to the big league ready. Um, so I think if Cross has a, a really good year this year, he'll, he'll be on that list. And he's been on a, a bunch of other lists, too. So I consider him a top 100 prospect. Uh, but, but the fact is, there's, you can't really make an argument for too many other guys to be on there. I mean, I think Michael Garcia made a list uh, for Kylie McDaniel over at ESPN, who he was, he was pretty high on Garcia. A lot of other people say, yeah, he's probably a utility infielder unless he develops some power. Uh, and after that, it's like, well, I mean, Frank Mazzucato next year if he has a really good year. Uh, ben Kaderna, maybe if he puts it all together this year. Uh, Carter Jensen, you know, could jump on a list. But certainly not anyone right now is, is really banging down the door to be on that list. Now, look, prospect lists are just kind of evaluations at a snapshot in time. Uh, certainly there are good players like Whit Merrifield who never sniffed a top 100 list. But you do want, you know, guys that are highly rated. And, and look, there's a lot of guys in the system that didn't have very good seasons last year. And it makes you kind of wonder when, when J.J. Piccolo says stuff like, we think our minor league pitching development's good. It's, it's a major league, you know, uh, instruction that's been the problem. I don't know if the, the, med, the data backs it up. And I know, you know, the on-field results aren't everything. I mean, I'm sure they're evaluating things, you know, on all aspects of the game. But it's not, it's not good when Azel Lacey has the kind of season he had, he had last year. It's not good that Frank Mazzucato had a super high walk rate last year. You know, it's not good that a lot of these pitchers seem to take a step backwards uh, like Alec Marsh last year. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty high-level concern. And, yeah, they did graduate a lot of guys. So I get that. But the Royals need to be a team that's, like, constantly churning guys out, right? We need to develop that, uh, that pipeline of talent because we're not going to go out and spend money on the free agent market. Uh, and so when you see teams like Tampa Bay and Cleveland and Baltimore as a bunch of guys on the list, that's what the Royals need to be. It, it, and even if you graduate a couple guys, you need a couple more guys to replace them because not all these guys are going to pan out. And, and if you're saying, well, we don't have anyone behind them because we graduated these players, well, then these, these, these players at the major league level really better pan out, right? We can't have too many busts at the major league level. Um, and so, yeah, I, that concerns me a little bit. Uh, but, well, you know, we'll see. I think they do have some guys that could jump onto a list with a good season this year. Like I mentioned, with Coderna, I think he's got that kind of potential. I think Mazzucato, if he, you know, irons out the walks, I think he could be a guy that rises up some lists. Uh, Carter Jensen's a guy I'm pretty high on. I think he's, his walk numbers are, are really excellent. He's got some um, power potential as well as a catcher. So I think there's some guys that to be excited about. But uh, it may take some time for them to kind of uh, rise up these prospect lists and become serious uh, prospects on people's radars. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review. Now, Max, uh, the Royals pitching status, as I'm sure you saw, has come out with the slogan of Raid the Zone. So are we here to believe that a Royals coaching staff is really valuing throwing strikes or attacking the zone effectively. I mean, what do you make of this new slogan for Royals pitchers? As we all know last year, nobody tried to raid the zone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like kind of obvious, like throw the ball down the middle, dummy. Like, you know, I mean, I, I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but, you know, it's, last year it sounds like they were having catchers set up in the corners, and, and that didn't give pitchers much margin for error. Like if they missed a little bit off the plate, uh, then that, that's going to be a ball called a ball. And, you know, Salvi and M.G. Melendez aren't – they haven't uh, done well in framing as far as the metrics go, uh, which I know framing you – know, people have their issues with framing, but it, it's a thing. You know, there are umpires that are imperfect, and they get fooled, and framing matters. And, and by all the metrics, 
Salvi and NJ Melendez haven't been good at it. Now, I think that may change. Paul Hoover is the guy they brought in to be bench coach this year. He's supposedly working with these guys to, to, uh, to work on their framing, and it sounds like Salvi's pretty open to it, which is good. Um, but, but this year, you know, some of it's pitching, too. Some of it's uh, the pitchers were trying to nibble too much. And I think just telling them, hey, throw it down the middle, trust your movement, you know, don't let the guy square up on it, but, but trust that movement, and, and, we'll, and it'll hit the corners, and, uh, and, but we want, we, we want you to be in the zone. And I think that's great. I mean, I think that's, that's a really good um, kind of way, especially with younger pitchers, where you don't want to teach them to nibble. You want them to kind of trust their stuff. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I, like the, I like what they're saying. We'll see if they can kind of implement it. Uh, but, uh, so I, you know, it's good that they're recognizing that, that walks are the big issue here. I think it's pretty obvious. But uh, it seems like they're attacking it. And, and I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a good message. And it's a simple message, too, because you don't want to overcomplicate things with a lot of, uh, you know, concepts that these pitchers can't understand. Uh, but I, I, did, I did have to laugh that one of the one of the things they were trying, I guess they, they had never had never tried before, was you know showing video from the side for a pitcher, uh, you know, to see his delivery. I guess that wasn't something they had done before, so it kind of makes you wonder how much how much catching up they have to do in terms of their pitcher development from what they had before. So, but at least they're on the right track, and we'll see. You know, maybe maybe we can start seeing results pretty quickly here because uh, you know these are pitchers with some talent, and if they can if they can figure out how to throw strikes, I think we could have. Uh, you know, some, some really good really good results here. Max, is that maybe the most infuriating thing of this Royals rebuild, that going back to 2018, which everybody seemed to deem as Dayton Moore's most important draft, he had to be able to hit on a lot of guys. And when he got some of these guys, scouts said, you know, they're projected to be pretty well. They like guys like Singer. They like Coar. They like Lynch. But then now you're in 2023, and you look back and almost go, man, if some of these pitchers weren't even learning some of the data or they weren't getting the right angles, the right coaching – that basically these last four years have been for not. They didn't really gain anything from this because they didn't get the right coaching. Are we able to look back now and go basically from 2019 to 2022, all those young guys they took, all the young pitchers, they never improved because they never had the chance or maybe the data or the coaching to improve? Well, and the good thing is I don't think it's too late for these guys. I mean, I, I think you know other teams like the Rays have shown that there are lots of guys that, that are lost in other organizations. They take them in like lost souls and it kind of show them the data. They're able to change their mechanics or change you know, some little tweak. And suddenly they're able to get this you know, terrific performance from them. Like Jason Adam, like a guy, the Royals just, you know, didn't have, couldn't get him to throw strikes. He was a, a nothing reliever here. He bounces around the league a little bit, ends up in Tampa Bay. They, they take him in and he suddenly he's an all-star caliber reliever, one of the best in the league. Uh, so I don't, and, and I think other teams are looking at our pitchers and saying, you know, th- those are good pitchers. We'd love to get our hands on them. We think we can, we, we think we can fix them. Uh, so if the Royals, you know, they, they have the pitching coach apparatus that, uh, they, you know, that they believe can, can get some results. But they have good pitchers to work with. I mean, I, I like the draft pick that they had in 2018. I liked, uh, you know, Daniel Lynch. I liked him quite a bit. Uh, Chris Bubich was a guy, I mean, I heard Keith Law in an interview say, man, Chris Bubich has the, you know, the stuff to be a fifth starter in this league. I mean, his, his upside isn't super high, but he should be a fifth starter. Like, he should be giving you more consistent results. So, how, why have they not been able to unlock that talent yet? Um, you know, Brady Singer, they have. So, that's at least a step in the right direction. But uh, it is a little infuriating that they, they got these talented pitchers. It's not a, necessarily a drafting uh, problem here. They, they've identified some pretty good pitchers. They just haven't been able to, to develop them at the major league level. And so, we'll see. Uh, you know, they, they put a lot of uh, kind of hope on this, on Brian Sweeney and uh, Zach Bove and, 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 and Paul Gibson, their director of pitching, 
and, and so we should see some results pretty quickly because uh, they seem like they, they've identified some of these problems and, and, and have these guys uh, headed in the right direction. So, you know, if these guys are, are, are talented, we should uh, see, see some results as, as soon as this year, I would think. With the Cactus League opener on Friday against Texas, it'll be Daniel Lynch getting the start, Jose Quas getting some work in, Josh Stallman as well, then Mike Myers going on Saturday against those same Texas Rangers. Max, who do you have more confidence in right now? The starting rotation, who I guess we could probably assume will be Brady Singer, Zach Greinke, uh, Jordan Lyles, Daniel Lynch, and let's go with Brad Keller, or the rest of the bullpen that will have guys like Stallman, Barlow, Chapman, Josh Taylor, uh, maybe a guy like Richard Lovelady, Taylor Clark. Uh, who would you have more confidence in right now to be the better, quote-unquote, pitching staff? Is it the bullpen, the relievers, or is it the starting five with the rotation? I think the the, the bullpen could be sneaky. I don't want to say necessarily good, but but not bad. You know, like, I think there's some good arms out there. I think, yeah. I mean, Scott Barlow, I think you know what you got. I, the velocity drop concerns me a little bit, but he was still able to get pretty good results last year despite – not being able to throw as hard as he has in the past. And then you, you coupled out with Chapman, who, you know, he's, he's at an advanced stage, but, you know, one-year deal, we'll see what he has. I think we'll know pretty quickly. If he's, if he's throwing 95 in April, then we can kind of say, okay, this may not last very long. But if he's, if he's back up, you know, they, they think they've identified something with him to get better results than they saw last year uh, when he was with the Yankees. So if they're able to figure that out, then, then we could get, you know, maybe close, not, not as, as peak Chapman, but, but pretty good. You know, pretty good Chapman is, is still better than most guys. So uh, Dylan Coleman, I think, is, is really intriguing as a late-inning reliever. I think uh, Amir Garrett, I know he can be frustrating with the walks, but he was pretty hard to hit last year. Uh, you know, I think guys were hitting off like 180 off him last year. So he's kind of – I think he's a little bit better than maybe his numbers uh, would suggest. And then Josh Stallmont, I think, is a, is a good bounce-back candidate. I saw he might be adding some pitches to his arsenal as well. If he can stay healthy, I think he could be, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty nice late-inning option too. So – I think there's some decent arms out there. I know, you know, what what they do with these arms, we'll see. I, I imagine a lot of them will be trade uh, uh, options in July. But some of these guys, are wanna, they're going to want to hang on to. So uh, I still think, I, I, and I think having a lot of options out there will will prevent them from, you know, burning out anyone's arm. I mean, I think the more options you have, the less guys you need to have out there running on fumes. So, uh, you know, we'll see, what, we'll see what they have with the bullpen. Rotation, I think, is still... I mean, just because you have Jordan Lyles and you know Brian Yarb, guys like Yarn Yarbrough are probably getting some starts. Zach Granke, who I love Zach, but you know the, the potential's not up, you know it's not a super high upside with any of those guys because of their age. And there's going to be a lot of starts like that, so I'm not super excited about that. I mean, I'd love to see Daniel Lynch break through this year. I'd love to see Chris Bubich or Jonathan Heasley break through this year. Uh, but I think right now the bullpen actually kind of intrigues me more. Um, other than, you know, maybe seeing Lynch uh, put it all together. And, uh, again, he's a guy I think could really benefit from having Brian Sweeney in his corner. I mean, I like the number. His first inning numbers the last uh, two years, he's like the second worst pitcher in baseball in the first inning, which tells me he wasn't prepared for his starts, which tells me, you know, the coaching staff may not have him prepared for his start. So just having a different coaching staff I think could be a huge benefit for him. Uh, especially if they're able to you know, raid the zone and get him to throw strikes. Because when he throws strikes, he can be a, a very effective pitcher. So I, I've got some, I still got a lot of high hopes for him. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review, previewing uh, spring training for your boys in blue. This might be a little bit of a stupid question because we haven't even seen this team play on the baseball diamond down in Surprise, Arizona. But if you could put money on one guy 
to maybe shock everybody and break camp with the Royals and be there on opening day against the Minnesota Twins in late March, who would that guy be? A surprising roster? Uh, who? I don't know, because it feels like this roster is pretty well set, um, aside from maybe a la- the last couple roster spots. So I don't know if there's a whole lot of room for a guy to bust through. I mean, the fact they mentioned Samad Taylor, you mentioned him at the beginning of this yeah. interview. I mean, the, the fact they mentioned him was kind of interesting just because he wasn't really on my radar. He's a guy I like. Uh, they got him from the Blue Jays and the Whit Merrifield deal, and he's kind of a kind of a poor man's Whit Merrifield. You know, he plays second base and outfield and has pretty good speed, but he missed, you know, the entire second half with injury. Uh, so he hasn't really seen a lot of game action other than the Arizona Fall League. Uh, so, you know, so I thought maybe, you know, he'd start out in the minors, but it wouldn't surprise me if he makes the team as a as a bench guy. He's, you know, he's, he's got kind of the skill set you like to see out of a bench guy. Uh, you know, positional versatility can run a little bit. Does you know has a little bit of pop. Um, so that, that would be kind of an interesting uh, guy to make the team. Tyler Gentry might be an interesting guy to make the team. Uh, you know, with uh, Drew Waters going down, that opens up an outfield spot. There's not a lot of outfielders in camp, uh, and a guy like Tyler Gentry who put together a really underrated season in the minors and. I think probably got, should have gotten at least a little buzz for, for making a top 100 prospect list. But he's a guy that has pretty good pop, uh, can run a little bit, play corner outfield, maybe stretch him in center field a little bit. Um, yeah, he'd be kind of intriguing as a guy that can make the team, you know, maybe like Kyle Isbell did back in 2020, kind of surprise you and make the team and maybe uh, get some playing time early on. So I think there is, you know, most of those spots are filled, but, you know, there's always room for a team that's coming off uh, the season the Royals came off. Uh, to, to make a team. You know, there's, there's going to be jobs that can be had if it's a good spring. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if a guy like that busts through and, and maybe open some eyes. Now, there's been some great articles come out by Annie Rogers, who covers the Royals for MLB.com, and one of them that really stood out to me was that piece on Daniel Lynch. And if you go find the tweet back on Annie's Twitter page, it's basically Daniel Lynch saying, you know, last year I had some ups, I had some downs, and there was inconsistency. And he said something along the lines of, I think there was obvious reasons as to why. Uh, I w- got the chance to skim the article. I really didn't go in-depth on it, but I did get to see a, read a good chunk of it where it was very intriguing to me kind of hear Daniel Lynch's side of things of why he struggled last year. But do you think maybe that was a little bit of a nod to the coaching of maybe not being as prepared, working with too many pitches? I mean, we see around baseball all the time, the most successful teams with the best pitching staffs, they're not asking their guys to have five or six pitches in their arsenal. Unless you're Zach Granke and you've made it that far, you really need to just have one or two pitches that are really good. And surprise, surprise, the Royals' best starter last year was Brady Singer, who basically had that two-seam sinker and a slider. He threw the changeup a little bit more than he did in years past, but for the most part, he was damn good with about two pitches. So was Daniel Lynch maybe nodding at the coaching staff, saying, hey, we just it's obvious why I was kind of inconsistency. I wasn't inconsistent. I wasn't as prepared. Or is that more sort of saying obvious reasons I didn't have the best stuff? Well, yeah, I've gotten a, a few sub, kind of like subliminal messages from the players about last year's coaching staff. I think Nicky Lopez had a quote a couple weeks ago about, you no, know, it wasn't, you know, it sounded like it wasn't the most lax, uh, you know, relaxed clubhouse last year. It sounded like it was pretty tense. Uh, and there was a lot of whispers about how Mike Matheny ran the ship and it, it was pretty tense and his kind of win at all costs each game uh, attitude kind of was a, really wore on the players. Like it was a little bit of a grind. And of course, you know, there's also the preparation thing with, with especially with the pitchers that I talked about. Uh, and so I could, I could see that. And what I've gotten a lot from, the new coaching staff is that they really want to kind of simplify things. And I know that's 
you know, when, when you bring in guys that are all about data and analytics, you always worry about, you know, uh, analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis where you know, they're overthinking things and trying to do too much and, you know, it just, it just doesn't, doesn't work. And I think they've kind of gone the opposite direction of saying, okay, here's what we know works, you know, thanks to the data, but we're going to keep it nice and simple and we just want you to do this one thing, you know, raid the zone or with the hitting side. I think it's, it's like they want to just identify good pitches and do damage to them. Um, you know, simple things that kind of seem obvious, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, it's, it's sometimes you need to hear that message and see what maybe the data to back it up to, to kind of really hammer that point home with, with these players. And, and, and it seems like they've been very receptive to it. And I think, you know, we heard all offseason J.J. Piccolo talked about what he wanted out of the new manager and coaching staff, communication. And there's probably a reason why he stressed that so much, right? I mean, you know, they, it doesn't sound like they were getting that last year. And so they want someone who's able to communicate these maybe more complex ideas from the analytics staff onto the field in a simple, digestible way that players can understand and buy into it. And so right now it sounds like they're, they're doing all the right things. I mean, it's, 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 this is what we've needed for, frankly, a long time. And it's nice to be, you know, with these young players that are that are buying, it sounds like they're buying in. And then, look, it, it, this is – you know, players all over the league are buying into this. So if the Royals weren't, weren't going to buy in, well, they're, they're going to be out of step with the rest of baseball. Uh, but it's nice to hear them kind of saying the right things. And it sounds like there's a much different uh, kind of atmosphere in that clubhouse. So, you know, that's, sometimes you make a change just because you need to shake things up. And if nothing else, you know, it, it, you kind of needed that, uh, that change in the clubhouse uh, going from Athena to Quattrao. We're talking with Max Reaper of Royals Review and just the last couple questions for you here, Max. But I think it was Nicky Lopez that said this, and I thought it was pretty hilarious when speaking to Matt Quattraro, and he said, there's days that I don't even know he's here until he's actually there. Like, he's just that quiet in the background and, and kind of having that more laxed approach, whereas we heard last year, uh, kind of a tense clubhouse. Mike Matheny ran things differently, and that goes back to his days in St. Louis where, you know, we had the veterans really bully the rookies and make them feel uncomfortable and let them know that uh, they were beneath the veterans. But now you hear from Bobby Wood Jr. that, you know, Matt Quattrall is asking for young guys' input. How can we be better? This is your guys' baseball team. I want to make this the smoothest transition as possible. Do you like that approach from a manager that's so hands-off that really uh, he kind of stays in the background, he just observes everything, instead of kind of that in-your-face type of manager that may be intense and go, we need to win every single game, but maybe Matt Quattrall is better equipped to handle this team because he knows it's going to take a couple of years to get this team to where it needs to be. Yeah, I think when you're when you're first coming over as a new manager to a new organization, I think you kind of want to take a little bit more hands-off role. I mean, you know, he's trying he's trying to he's trying to learn these personalities. He's trying to learn this organization. You know, he's still pretty new to all this. He's still still learning names. You know, uh, and so you don't want to come in and start barking orders. And say, I know how to do this, especially when he's never managed before. So I, I I think that makes a lot of sense to come in with a very open-minded approach. You know, communicating with players, say, hey, what what. What are your ideas? How can we improve this? That, that makes a lot of sense to me. He is very laid back, though. I, I will say that that what I read about him before they hired him, it, it, it sounded good. I mean, I, I think he's. I think this is a great hire. His his kind of laid back approach did concern me a little bit. I mean, I won't I won't, I won't lie. I think he does have a reputation of being a, a very laid back kind of stoic. Uh, he's not going to be yelling at umpires that much. I don't think. I don't. I, you know, I don't think he's going to be like turning over uh, tables in the clubhouse when they lose. Like he's he's going he's gonna to be having an even keel, which, you know, for a young team that's going to go through a lot of ups and downs, I think that's probably best. I don't think you want a guy that's yelling at them every night they lose because they're going to lose a lot of games this year. Uh, they're going to take their lumps. Um, so a steady hand approach 
is, 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 is going to be good in a lot of respects. I just do worry sometimes that if there are issues, uh, you know, is he going to be able to, to take control of the situation, show leadership? Because um, you know, he's never been a manager before. Uh, and so, you know, that, that'll be his test. And, and look, he's a smart guy. He's come from a really good organization. Everything I've heard about him has been positive. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty confident he can handle these situations. But he hasn't managed before and wants to see, uh, you know, how do you handle, uh, you know, a player that maybe doesn't buy in? How do you handle things when you're in a 12-game losing streak in the middle of June and, and the season's kind of spiraling out of control? How do you get things back on the right uh, track? So uh, how, do you, how do you handle players that are angry about their playing time? I mean, there's a lot of playing time out there to be had. There's not really obvious all-star starters at each position. There's going to be guys upset they're not playing more. Uh, how do you handle that in July? Uh, so yeah, we'll see how he handles it. I'm, you know, I'm, not gonna, I'm certainly uh, thrilled with the hire, and, and I'm open-minded that he's going to be a, a really solid manager for them. But, but with any unproven manager, I think there's always going to be a little bit of doubt. But uh, certainly we're hearing all the right things from him in spring training. All right. Well, Max, thanks so much for your time as always. And next time we talk, I'm sure we'll have more stats and stuff to go over from the last couple spring training games. So take care. Yeah, we'll have actual baseball to talk about. It's going to be great. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> there he goes. That's Max Reaper of Royals Review, always giving us such great insight on the boys in blue. And We are back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Many games to watch tomorrow in the Big 12, many of which will decide who the eventual champion will be of the regular season. You can start it off at 11 a.m. with the Oklahoma Sooners looking to crawl out of the basement of the Big 12 on the road against the Iowa State Cyclones in Hilton Coliseum, Iowa State and a little bit of a free fall right now at 17-10 and 10 on the year. They have lost four of their last five games, their only win coming up, coming against a very banged-up TCU squad. Also tipping off at 11 a.m. is the 24th-ranked TCU Horn Frogs, looking to bounce back from their loss to Kansas on Monday night. They will be in Lubbock against the suddenly hot Texas Tech Red Raiders, and a Red Raiders team that is trying to find a way into the NCAA tournament, but for that to happen, likely need to finish 2-1 and one at minimum. One of those games will be in Lawrence against Kansas, and then you'll probably need to win two games at minimum in the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City to give yourself a fighting chance to get into March Madness. Tipping off at 1 p.m., and I'm sure all eyes for KU fans will be on this game before their eventual tip at 3 p.m. against West Virginia. It'll be the 8th-ranked Texas Longhorns on the road against the ninth-ranked Baylor Bears, who have lost back-to-back games to Kansas and Kansas State. That'll be on ESPN, so it'll be the game leading up to Kansas and West Virginia. For the standings and the implications of it, if Texas was to lose and Kansas wins at 3 p.m. against West Virginia, that would put Kansas alone in first place by one game with just two games to go. And then Texas would also have to travel on the road to TCU for their next game. Kansas would still be at home against Texas Tech. But first things first, the Longhorns will have to beat Baylor and need Kansas to lose 
to grab sole possession of first place once again in the Big 12 race. Kansas State, 14th in the country, will be on the road in Stillwater against Oklahoma State. That'll tip off at 1 p.m. on ESPNU. Oklahoma State, like Texas Tech, is still fighting for a spot in the NCAA tournament. And as we just mentioned, at 3 p.m., it'll be Kansas at home against West Virginia, another team in this conference at 16-12 and 12 West Virginia going to need a shocking upset against Kansas or Iowa State or Kansas State to find a way into the NCAA tournament. So odds are against this now suddenly cold West Virginia team who's won just once in their last four tries. They will need a pretty big upset either against the Jayhawks, Cyclones, or Kansas State to close out the regular season. But looking at these two matchups for Kansas and Kansas State, let's start with the Wildcats in Stillwater against Oklahoma State. Here's the thing about Oklahoma State. I think back in the beginning part of February, we thought, man, this team is now suddenly going to take off. They had won five in a row. They had beaten Ole Miss by 22, beaten Oklahoma on the road by 10. They handled TCU at home by six, then beat Texas Tech by three at home, went into Hilton, became the only team this year to beat Iowa State in Ames. And you kind of felt like, all right, that was the indicator that Oklahoma State not only will be an NCAA tournament team, but maybe a team that can finish in the top half of the Big 12. They welcomed Kansas on Valentine's Day, and that has really been where this season has been decided for Oklahoma State. At one point, you're red hot, nothing's going wrong. Then they lose to Kansas, follow that up by going to Fort Worth and giving up 100 to the Horn Frogs with Mike Miles and Eddie Lampkin a little bit more healthy, and they lose 100-75, to then go to Morgantown on Monday night and lose by 18. So a little bit of a free fall for Oklahoma State over these last three. They've lost all three games by double digits. The defense has been a non-factor, allowed 87 to Kansas, 100 to TCU, and 85 to West Virginia. Prior to that point, they allowed in their five-game winning streak, 60 to Ole Miss, 61 to Oklahoma, 73 to TCU, 68 to Texas Tech, and 56 to Iowa State. So Oklahoma State was winning a lot of those games on the defensive side of things, and after what we've seen from Kansas State in their last two games, winning more of a, a rock fight against Iowa State and then dominating Baylor in the second half, you're going to need a near-perfect game defensively to slow down this Kansas State squad. Now, Kansas State has lost five consecutive games in conference play away from Bramlage, and that's where two of their games of the final three will be played. You have to go to Stillwater on Saturday, then you got to go to Morgantown next Saturday to take on West Virginia. Sandwich in between that, Kansas State has their senior day against the Oklahoma Sooners. So no teams ranked in the top 25 for Kansas State, but also two very tough environments they're going to have to go into. Some numbers to point out for both these teams heading into this matchup. Oklahoma State is ranked 262nd in points scored. Kansas State 128th in the nation in points per game. Oklahoma State is 229th. Kansas State is top 194th. Field goal percentage, Oklahoma State is 207th. K-State is 167th. And free throw percentage, which very well could be a deciding factor in this game. you got to shoot the ball well from the charity stripe on the road if you want to win in the Big 12. Kansas State has a guy by the name of Marquise Noel, who I think has only missed two or three times over his last six or seven games. The Cats are 56th in the country in free throw percentage. Oklahoma State, 228th. And shooting the ball from deep, there's really not a worse team 
in the Big 12 than Oklahoma State. They are 286 in the country, shooting the ball at a 32.2% clip. Kansas State, not much better, only by a percentage point and a half at 33.6. That's good for 215th in the nation. And rebounding, that is where Oklahoma State has K-State beat. They're 112th in the nation, K-State 146th. In assists, uh, K-State really shines in this category. They are 11th in the country, Oklahoma State just 209th. And turning the ball over, both teams are very bad at it. Oklahoma State is 333rd. They turn the ball over over 14 times per game. K-State not far ahead of them, 300th in the country, and turning the ball over, they average 13.3 turnovers per game. An assist per turnover ratio, Oklahoma State 292nd. The Cats are 56th. And lastly, the one main reason as to why Oklahoma State can shine a little bit defensively, they're 16th in the country in blocks. They average about five blocks per game. Kansas State uh, just averages about 2.7 blocks per game. That's good for 243rd in the nation. It does concern me that K-State is not a very good road team anymore, and that does come as a shock because their first two road games in conference play were against Texas and Baylor, two of the top teams in the conference, and they dominated Texas, winning by 13 and hanging 116 in regulation, and then against Baylor, they win in an overtime thriller 97-95. Since that point, though, they just don't look like the same team. Uh, We brought up the word fatigued before their two-game winning streak against Iowa State and Baylor. It's not a tired team at home, but on the road... We've seen this team struggle to get up for lesser opponents, and Kansas State is a team I think is top three in the Big 12. And now that they overlook these teams, I just don't think they play as amped up as they do at home. And it's you know pretty easy to say that. It's simple. I think every team plays more amped up at home. But Stillwater's a little bit of a death trap arena to go into. Gallagher-Iba has always been one of those tricky places to play. It's very slanted, and I know that doesn't mean much to the average viewer, But the way that stadium is structured, it just kind of looks like you're playing in a pit. And when that place is sold out and it's loud and there is something on the line there, it is no easy game. It doesn't matter if Oklahoma State is 20 and 8, or they're 16 and 12, or they're 12 and 16, or they're 8 and 20. That place can be sort of a death trap for teams going in there, especially teams ranked in the top 15 as Kansas State is. But Kansas State can easily control this game in a number of ways. I think if you get the type of performance you're looking for from Keontae Johnson, there's not going to be much that Oklahoma State can do offensively to hang in that game. And Oklahoma State is going to need to keep this game down in the low 60s. You know, you let Kansas State score over 70 points, I don't think they're getting away with the win in this one because Oklahoma State, simply put, just doesn't shoot the ball that well. They don't shoot it well from deep. They don't shoot it well from the free throw line. They don't have a high field goal percentage. There's not a lot of scores on this team. You know, I do like a guy like Caleb Boone, who definitely had his best performance of the year against Kansas when he shot 10 of 15 from the floor at 27 points at nine boards. And that's who I think they're going to try to play through because Kansas State doesn't have, doesn't have very good bigs in this game. Uh, they haven't really had a very good big all season. Naquan Tomlins had his moment. David Gassan's had his moments. We talked with Ryan Gilbert yesterday on the show, and he was kind of pointing out how, you know, it's Keontae Johnson as the main big guy. They're still looking for that third option, whether that be Naquan Tomlin at the five or David Gassan at the five. But to me, Oklahoma State 
wants to slow this game down, keep it in the half court, play through the post. Kansas State's going to want to speed them up. They're going to want to get Marquise Noel going. They're going to want to get Keontae Johnson the ball. I wouldn't even say in the post. They're going to want to get want to get Keontae Johnson driving toward the basket because Keontae Johnson may take on a guy like a Caleb Boone. Maybe he's defended by an Avery Anderson. Maybe he gets defended by a John Michael Wright. Uh, he's such a difficult matchup because he's kind of a three-slash-four for this Kansas State team. He's a stretch-four, can shoot the ball from deep, but he's also one of the best drivers in the Big 12. But if you get that type of performance from Keontae Johnson that he had against Baylor on Tuesday night, uh, this will be a 10-point, 15-point win for Kansas State. Just because Oklahoma State, unlike Baylor, doesn't really have the offensive firepower. Now, we saw against Texas Tech, that's exactly what they did to Kansas State. They turned them over. It was a half-court game, and when Kansas State started to struggle in the half-court, they couldn't speed up Texas Tech, and Texas Tech got them to play their style of basketball. The only way Oklahoma State wins this game is if they get Kansas State to play their style of basketball. On the flip side, K-State can run them out of the gym if they can't keep up. Bryce Thompson, the former Jayhawk, he's had his moments this year. He has really, really improved when you go back to two years ago when Bryce Thompson was a Kansas Jayhawk. But, man, he is probably their best go-to scorer. Just having a guard that can take you off the dribble, shoot it a little bit better from deep. I mean, that is probably one of the main reasons Oklahoma State hasn't had, outside of their five-game winning streak, a long stretch of wins on the season. They haven't had those three- or four-game winning streaks, the hot stretch of play, because they never can get that consistency shooting the ball from deep. And when you are an underdog, you kind of have to shoot the ball well from deep. So Oklahoma State and Kansas State will tip off at 1 p.m. on Saturday. I think the good thing for Kansas State, win or lose, it's not really going to impact their seeding in the NCAA tournament. If they do win, it's more of a bonus than anything. I think they're trying to solidify that three seed in Kansas City for the Big 12 tournament. I think they want to be in the Midwest region, of course, because that put them in Des Moines and then Kansas City. But Kansas State, I think, kind of can go into this game playing a little bit looser, more lax. They're 21-7. and They could lose in Stillwater and in Morgantown, win against Oklahoma and Norman. You're not feeling good about going into Kansas City at 22-9. and But also, at the same time, those are not bad road losses. And I don't think it's going to impact, because of how many quad one wins Kansas State has, it's not really going to impact the Cats in bumping down to a force. I think if they were to lose to Oklahoma State, West Virginia, then lose in their first game in Kansas City and be 22-10, and 10, I think they would bump them down to a four seed. But even then, I think it's still a very favorable matchup for Kansas State, who's done a great job against quad one teams this season. So that'll tip off again at 1 p.m. on ESPNU. Cats in Stillwater against Oklahoma State. As for the Jayhawks, they will be back at home against West Virginia, one of the first teams they played on the road in conference play. They had Texas Tech in Lubbock, that first go-round, and I want to say West Virginia was right after that. They had to go from Lubbock to Morgantown. You had two of your tougher road environments out of the way. Now you get a West Virginia team who does come off an 18-point win over Oklahoma State, but it's also a West Virginia team that's just not fared well on the road in conference play, and I know it's always tough to win on the road, but some of these scores on the road have been really, really bad for this West Virginia team. They lost by 34 on the road to Texas. They lost by 12 to Baylor. I don't want to say that's really a bad loss. They also lost in Norman against Oklahoma. 
They lost to Kansas State and Oklahoma State back-to-back on the road. If I'm not mistaken, the only road win in conference play that West Virginia has had was against Texas Tech. They won by 15 back on January 25th. So it's just not a very intimidating West Virginia team. They're a little bit more improved from last year. Bob Huggins' squad, I think, finished dead last in the Big 12 in the regular season. They beat Kansas State uh, in the Big 12 tournament in that first go-around on the first night uh, down in Kansas City. But it's just not the same West Virginia team. And that really is a shame because I think the Big 12 has always been better. It's been a little bit scarier when West Virginia was kind of that third or fourth best team and the conference, the Press Virginia teams with the great guards. You think about Javon Carter. I'll always remember that team. I'm blanking on the guy. It was before the Oscar Sheboy era. Uh, Derek Culver was another guy a big West Virginia had. They're all, I'm also missing Sagaba Kanate. I think that was his name. I could be wrong. I just pulled that out of the back of my brain. If I get that right, I'm going to be very impressed with myself. But I believe Kanate, I think it was Sagaba Kanate, was there alongside Oscar Sheboy when they had great guards and great bigs, and they were so damn physical. It's just a different West Virginia team now. They're not as physical anymore. They're not as dangerous anymore. And West Virginia thrived in the mid-2010s, late-2010s. They were teams that were constantly beating Kansas and Morgantown and giving Kansas a run for their money in Lawrence. Not saying West Virginia can't do that tomorrow afternoon, but it feels like Kansas is just unbeatable at this point. They are unbeatable on the back half of their schedule. Bill Sells' teams are always better in late February, and now you're coming back home, two games against two of the bottom teams in the conference to set you up for a massive showdown against Texas in Austin. Now, if you're Kansas, here's what you're hoping for. Here's a perfect opportunity. Did I get it right? Uh, you did get one right. Uh, Esha Ahmad too. He was oh a yeah, Esha, yes Ahmad as well. Um, so was it Sagaba Kanate? Yeah, Sagaba Kanate. Okay, perfect. 50, yeah. I I don't know how that you was like it. one of those things. Just uh, something opens up in the back of your mind, right? And you go, I don't even know how I just got that. I just I could picture the guy. I remember exactly what he looked like. He was alongside Sheboy, and I'm like, there was one guy that was not Sheboy, but was a better rim protector than Sheboy. See, and I, when you said the name, I was like, oh yeah, definitely, I remember the name. But and then I see the face, and I'm like, yep. Now he was a big dude. I mean, those West Virginia teams were just they were football players on the field. They were huge, right? And they just dominated everybody. And now they never won the conference. Elijah Macon, too. Oh, yeah, Macon. I mean, all those guys with Bob Huggins, as long as Bob Huggins has been there, there was an identity. Press Virginia. They were so physical, so fast, great guard play, and they're bigs. They weren't always the seven-footers, but they'd be like 6'8", 6'9", 6'10", and built like brick houses. And they could just back down anybody. I mean, Derek Culver was kind of the one guy that was just, you know, around 6'11", more of a finesse guy around the rim. But when they had Shibway and Kanate, uh, you never wanted to play West Virginia. You never wanted to run into West Virginia. And I think Kansas was fortunate a couple of times that while Shibway or Kanate was there, they had Yudoka Azabuki. Thankfully this year, Kansas, with their biggest big man being Ernest Uday, but he doesn't even start. It's K.J. Adams at 6-7 in the lineup. I think they're very fortunate West Virginia doesn't play like that anymore. But this Kansas team going up against a 16-12 and 12 West Virginia team, it's about taking care of business. And these final three games, Kansas has a much more favorable schedule than Texas does. Right, as we pointed out, Texas has to go on the road to Baylor on Saturday. They're in Waco, a Baylor team that's royally pissed off. They've lost back-to-back games. They've blown leads in the second half in back-to-back games. And if you're Kansas, you got to win these next two. You hope Texas drops one. 
And if Texas drops to either Baylor or TCU, the game in Austin is, of course, deciding if you win the conference outright. But if you lose, you still win the conference. So if Texas loses, in which they're probably going to be favored to lose in one of those games, either TCU or Baylor, I want to say they're probably not going to be favored against Baylor tomorrow, then you look at that and go, all right, that game in Austin, you've already clinched a Big 12 championship, but you kind of want to win it outright. Now, if you're looking at Kansas and it's the best possible opportunity, maybe Texas loses back-to-back games to Baylor and the TCU, and you can take care of business against West Virginia and Texas Tech, then it doesn't even matter what happens in Austin. You're just trying to win that conference by as many games as you can. So Kansas and West Virginia tipping off tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m. at Allen Fieldhouse. Jayhawks will look to stay atop the Big 12 and maybe move one game ahead of the Texas Longhorns. There is Ray Charles, so it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. You enjoy the weekend, and we'll talk to you on Monday at 10 AM, Kansas City. What you say?